This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, 1959, The Year That Everything Changed, our guest today, Fred Kaplan, or The Year That Changed Everything. Sorry about that. No, <laughs> it's, the, it's The Year Everything Changed. Yeah? Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, it's funny. What I did is I wrote The Year Everything Changed Everything. So, <laughs> I, so I had to think real fast, and I didn't right. write. Yeah. No well, fun. Fred Kaplan, you chronicled this vital and overlooked year that set the world as we know it in motion. Kaplan writes the War Stories column in Slate is also the author of Daydream Believers, How a Few Grand Ideas Wrecked American Power. Fred Kaplan, welcome to Weekly Signals. Oh, thanks. Good to be here. Uh, uh, how are you doing today? Good, good. It's a little yeah. hot, but uh, now, otherwise things are fine. Where are we reaching you? In Brooklyn. Ah, so, so it's, it's steamy hot there today, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah afraid so. <laughs> now, you blog for uh, Stereophile magazine. That's and, right. And, and you have a, a good deal of interest in jazz. Uh, did did that perk your interest in this whole subject? Did the fact that, you know, the song we just listened to and Coltrane's Giant Steps mm-hmm. and Take Five, did that kind of move you in this direction to write this book? Well, you know, it is funny that this all started uh, several years ago. It, it occurred to me all of a sudden that a lot of my favorite, not just albums, but also books and movies all came out in 1959. And it, it, it got me wondering, well, is this just a coincidence or... Was something bigger going on? Was this part of something momentous? And I, I began to look into it at first casually and then more and more intensively as I realized, uh, as I concluded. And, and you know, I, I'm, I'm usually very reluctant, I'm very skeptical of these books that claim, you know, that, you know, this year changed everything or this kind of fish changed everything, you know. <laughs> but I, I genuinely came to the conclusion that this was a year, this was a pivotal year in American history. I mean, literally, that the country was going in one direction, and then there was this shift, and it started to go in another direction. Well, let's just focus on on jazz just a little bit. Mm -hmm. What do you think was going on there? Well, some of it was internal. I mean, in 1955, Charlie Parker died, and Charlie Parker was, you know, he invented and, and perfected bebop, which became the form of modern jazz. Very fast, very clipped, very staccato improvisations based on extensions of chord changes. And when he died, there was this, and he, he'd sort of taken it as far as it could go, and there was this real sense within the jazz community of who's the next Charlie Parker? Where is the music going next? And this went on for about four years. People were looking for something new. And so when Ornette Coleman came to the East Coast and when Miles Davis uh, happened upon modal jazz for Kind of Blue, which based its improvisations on scales and tone colors and that sort of thing, there was this natural reception to it. Now, I'm not suggesting that, well, but, but I think that the wider reality is, well, why was this popular? Why did it become really, really popular? Mm-hmm. I mean, Kind of Blue is still the biggest selling jazz album of all time. Take Five, I believe, is the second biggest-selling jazz album of all time. Uh, that Ornette Coleman record that, that you just played an excerpt of, I mean, yeah, it, it didn't sell quite as well, but, I mean, it, it insinuated itself into jazz as we know it today. 
And I think it, it, it caught on because the whole country was in the mood for change, for something new. Because, and I think a lot of this is because of the space program. Oh. That At the beginning of that year, the first rocket that broke free of the Earth's gravitational pull was launched. This set off a, a, just an, a, an incredible excitement. It was also the year that the first jet plane flew nonstop from coast to coast, passenger plane. Again, people, this was a time of wonder. Uh, this was a time when uh, everybody sort of understood that tomorrow was going to be something fundamentally different from yesterday. Now there was excitement to this, and there was also a bit of terror to it. Hmm. But, but in any case, there was a sense of, of, ch- of impending change, of change as the natural order of things. And, and uh, you know, this is what John Kennedy wrote to the presidency on, you know, talking about the new frontier, a new generation born of this century. Uh, so I think that is why these albums and, and some of the more also revolutionary things in, in other art forms caught on as popularly as they did. It was because, I don't, you know, I don't think Miles Davis was saying, gee, we sent a rocket into space, I'm going to invent a different kind of jazz. <laughs> but people were ready for this because of what was going on in the broader reality. Uh-huh. So, so horizons were changing and perspectives yeah. were changing and, and limits to what we could do were changing, and, uh-huh. and that opened up a lot of different fields. That's at the, right. At the same time, you're saying there, there was a certain kind of fear or paranoia that went along with it. Was that just in reaction to that change, or do you think no, it was... No, it was... There, what was also going on, you know, was the bomb. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. this was the year of, of the missile gap. It was the year uh, when people were digging fallout shelters in their backyard, when there were theologians debating in the pages of... Catholic magazines like America, whether it was ethically permissible to shoot your neighbor if he tried to break into your fallout shelter during a <laughs> nuclear war. Uh, it was a year when Herman Kahn, who was sort of the intellectual model for Dr. Strangelove, was touring the country, enthralling listeners with a three-hour lecture about nuclear strategy. So there was this sense both of infinite possibilities and instant annihilation. And I think that this duality uh, unleashed tremendous creative energies, a sense of urgency about what was going on in life. Do you have, is there some person or some, yeah, I guess I'd say personality out of 1959 that really stands out for you, that really exemplifies all this? Well, I think Norman Mailer, uh, he, he starts my book and in a way he finishes it. He was... I think he was the guy who picked up on what was going on most perceptively. Uh, you know, he, he, in 1947, he published The Naked and the Dead. He was 25 years old. It was proclaimed to be the greatest novel to come out of World War II. Uh, his next two novels didn't do so well. He fell into a funk. He then discovered the, the magic potence of, of marijuana and jazz and uh, started a new way of writing. He wrote a book in 1959 called Advertisements for Myself, which can be seen as sort of the first example of the new journalism. It was a collection of essays, but he also put in uh, notes about what he was thinking at the time, what he was feeling at the time. He mixed that with fiction he wrote. He, he, uh, he, it was, you know, this mixture of journalism fiction, self-confessional literature, and, and one of the things, one essay that he had in this book 
said, some, it started out, uh, and I'm quoting from memory here, nobody can quite grasp the psychic toll that has been wreaked by the concentration camp and the atomic bomb. Hmm. And he said that out of this notion, this, this sense that we could all die at any minute, a new kind of person is taking hold. He called it an American existentialist or the hipster or the white Negro. And that's someone who realizing the imminence, the, the, the ever-present imminence of possible death decides to live life for today. And, and, and to search for new kinds of passion, a passion for the present, for the now. He also, in 1959, wrote an essay noting that after a decade of torpor, he is detecting the underpinnings of a potent change, the whispers of a revolution. And, you know, I, I think he was, he was catching how all of this was going to be leading to the, um, to the things that we now associate with the 60s. We're speaking with Fred Kaplan. The book is 1959, the year everything changed. And you know, I, I know that uh, Mike, just before we even came on air, was talking about his favorite year, 1968. <laughs> uh, it's, and people, I, I know, will argue with you that 1968 is, is far more important than 1959, or at least they brought that up, uh, 68 being more uh emblematic of the Cultural Revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you say to them? What, what gives your 1959 uh, one-upsmanship? Well, I would say this, that, that, you know, if you're looking at things that are happening out there, you know, uh, very dramatic on the front pages, on the TV screens, certainly a lot was going on in 1968. But I would argue that all of the things that we associate with the 60s in that sense actually started in the 50s, and they were instigated not by baby boomers, of whom I am one, by the way, but by the generation that came of age amid depression and war and grew disgruntled with the phony peace that followed. I mean, let me give you an example. The big thing about 68, of course, is... Um, this campus protests, you know, the new left, anti-Vietnam. Uh, well, the Vietnam War, War, as we knew it, started in 1959. That was the year that Ho Chi Minh decided to unify the two halves of the country by military force and that the first two American casualties were suffered. Mm -hmm. In 1959, C. Wright Mills wrote an essay, you know, the renegade sociologist, best known for The Power Elite and other books, wrote an essay called Letter to a New Left. At the time, there wasn't a new left, <laughs> but there was an undergraduate at the University of Michigan named Tom Hayden who read that essay, was inspired by it, and on the basis of that essay wrote the Port Huron Statement, which became the manifesto for the new left. Uh, rock and roll, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Well, rock and roll, that 1959 was the year Motown was started, and that was when rock music shifted from the kind of doo-wop, Buddy Holly influenced vibe to a more urban, black-infused, jazz-infused, uh, sexual pop music. Uh, sex? Well, 1959 <laughs> was the year that G.D. Searle applied for FDA approval of the birth control pill. Uh, you know, need I say any more about that? Uh, just I, you know, I'm not saying that if you were living in 1959 as a sentient adult, you would look around and see, you would see certain things happening. I think there was this sense that things were changing. In what direction, it was unclear, but that direction became clear 
through the 60s. But what I'm saying is that they had their root in a different generation in a slight in the in the era right before. And and also just in censorship in general seems mm-hmm. to be challenged in in 1959. You, you have uh, Burroughs' Naked Lunch. Uh, right. Talk a little bit about that. Tell well, us. the the key thing there was the Lady Chatterley trial. There was a man who's still alive, Barney Rossett. He was the publisher of Grove Press. Uh-huh. And in 1959, he decided that he was going to publish uh, the the long-censored, un, the, the unexpurgated text of D.H. Lawrence's 1928 novel, uh-huh. Lady Chatterley's Lover, which had never been published in its purest form in the United States because it had a lot of four-letter words and very graphic descriptions of sex. So he put out a book. It was confiscated by the post office, which at the time, people don't remember this, the post office had the power to declare any work of literature or magazine obscene and to prevent it from being sent through the postal system, including from publishers to bookstores, for example. So they had a stranglehold on what people could read in this country. So he challenged the post office in court, sued them, and won, as a result of which the post office stopped doing this, and there was suddenly this explosion of free speech. I mean, Lady Chatterley's lover uh, soared to number two on the bestseller list. In paperback the first year, it sold two million copies. There was this pent-up appetite for forbidden fruit. It was also the year that Lenny Bruce, you know, the, the comedian first went on national television, put out his first record album. And, you know, up until Lenny Bruce and Mort Soule, you know, a stand-up comedian was somebody who got up and told jokes about his mother-in-law uh-huh. or maybe his psychiatrist. Lenny Bruce, you know, spun these long monologues about sex and politics and religious hypocrisy and race. I mean, you know, just introducing topics that uh, nobody was talking about in public. I mean, you know, this is where you look at things today on HBO, Showtime, Comedy Central. Uh, none of it would have existed without without Lenny Bruce. And again, this is something else that you can trace back to this magical year when hierarchies began to be smashed and barriers were burst through. Wow. We're speaking with Fred Kaplan. The book is 1959, The Year Everything Changed. Um, the uh, politics, I mean, we've, we've sort of brushed up against some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Castro comes to power uh, the very first day, I believe, yeah. of 1959. Obviously a, uh, an important event, certainly in our hemisphere and around the world, and which led to all kinds of political um, uh, confrontations and otherwise. And on the very last day of the year, you have listed the announcement of John Kennedy's uh, bid for the presidency. Right. Which seems quaint today, because uh, in the sense that the election, the presidential election, was actually 1960, November of 1960, That's right. and only 11 months prior to that, he's <laughs> announcing for president, which yeah. in this day and age is uh, would be unheard of. Well, you know, there uh, wasn't the kind of media, and you yeah. know, there, there are also most until Kennedy, nobody really ran in primaries. Yeah. Kennedy ran in ten primaries, in twelve primaries, and won ten of them, and that was what uh, before then it was. The, the major candidates, it was all the, the you know, backroom cigar-smoking party bosses. But but uh, Castro, it's very interesting. Uh, a lot of people remember when Cast- Castro's second trip to the United States in 1960, which was very hostile. 
Uh, was that his visit to the UN? Was that yeah, with yeah. the UN with Khrushchev banging his shoe and Castro not finding rooms in Midtown and storming up 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 to Harlem to stay at the Teresa Hotel and but his first visit uh, was in the spring of 1959. He had just come to power. He was you know 30 years old. Uh, and he was greeted like a hero. Yeah. He, uh, I, there's a picture in my book, a photograph of Castro with some people eating an ice cream cone in, at the Bronx Zoo. He spoke in front of 30,000 people in Central Park. He wowed the annual conference of the American Society of Newspaper Editors. The New York Times was, was calling him, you know, a, a man who evoked the time of Sam Adams and Thomas Jefferson. What was going on here? He seemed to be something new under the sun, namely a revolutionary who was beholden neither to capitalism nor communism and who might therefore represent a breakout from this deadly locked-in Cold War that was that was absorbing everything in politics. Well, you know, turned out not to be for well, a variety of reasons. Well, but but still, that the, the excitement about him represented or signified the hunger that people had for for a new kind of politics. Now that you just mentioned something that uh, reminded me of that uh, another part of the political landscape during that era. And, and 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 for that moment, <clears throat> Castro seemed to embody, which was <clears throat> the uh, the movement for non-alignment, uh, oh, yeah. which was a very important movement, uh, sort of as you were just articulating, sort of to steer clear between being closely allied with either the Soviet Union right. or or the United States, and how important that really that movement was until its demise um, at the end of when uh, the Soviet Union collapsed in 1989. And, and now, what a different! Every, now everybody's independent. <laughs> well, now everybody, but yeah, but it and, and it did provide a space for um, for some um, diplomacy that didn't did not exist uh, does not exist. Well, the, yeah, the, the, the non-aligned movement started a few years earlier, but uh, but yeah, it sort of did reach a peak there, and and uh, of course the, the Vietnam War what was part of this too. It, it it's. The significance of that in terms of my book is that it, um, it signaled to the United States, to the political leaders, that they had to learn more about the world. Yeah. Uh, you know, but this is amazing. In 1958, there was a study done by the State Department indicating that only about 15, that's 1-5% of our foreign service officers were fluent in any foreign language. And that's remarkable. So they, they they started up the Foreign Service Institute and, and really intensified language skills. Within a year and a half, those figures were roughly reversed. About about All of a sudden, about 70% of Foreign Service officers could speak a foreign language. Uh, it was the year when, when, because the world was getting smaller, you know, with jet travel, with ICBMs, uh, there was a realization that you know, to maintain U.S. influence, uh, we had to learn it wasn't just that everybody wanted to be like us or that we would show that we're better than the Russians and therefore come be like us. We had to reach out to the world uh, and uh, on, on its own terms. This was happening culturally, too. It's, it's very interesting um, in, in films, for example. John Cassavetes in 1959 made the first what could be called independent film. He filmed it on the streets of New York uh, with an amateur cast, with almost no money, uh, with, with no 
nothing except natural lighting, which was possible due to the invention the year before of Kodak Tri-X film. Uh, he was influenced heavily by Italian neorealist films, which were just starting to come into the country uh, in, in Upper West Side cinemas. Uh, at the same time, he didn't know it, but at the same time across the ocean, the French New Wave was beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, the, these young film critics turned auteurs like Truffaut and Godard started making their films, and they were influenced by the energy of film noir and westerns and thrillers of the United States in the 40s. So, and then, you know, these films start going back and forth, and there is the beginnings of a, of a world cinema, really, where, where directors and critics on, on both sides of the Atlantic are, are, whether intentionally or not, influencing each other's works, each other's artistic approaches, and, and it was really the beginning of a, of a world culture. Uh, I, I'm surprised that, uh, well, that 1959 hasn't got this kind of recognition before, to tell you the yeah. truth. Uh, only, Me too. And do you, th- do you think it has something to do with uh, uh, baby boomers' self-importance? Like, Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, maybe so, and it could also be, as I said, that in the late 60s, everything was up on the table. I mean, uh-huh. all the things that, that, that I write about as being in the developing stages, you know, as kind of the switch being flicked on at the end of the 50s, you know, it, it, it's on, you know, full nuclear power by the end of the 60s, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and and it's true, the, the baby boomer, and again, I, I was born in 1954, so I am right in the smack in the middle of the baby boomer generation. Uh, we have influenced a lot of, uh, of cultural perception. Uh, in fact, I would say that until until really the onset of, of real computer culture, uh, which kind of displaced us. We, we kind of controlled everything. And by the way, speaking of computers, yeah. 1959 was the year when the microchip was invented. Mm-hmm. It was the year that IBM introduced the first business computer, the 1401. So, I mean, even that had its roots uh, in 1959. Uh, my, uh, <clears throat> I'm all these things... Uh... They, you're right. They, they seem to be the the uh, the very, the 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 breeding ground for the the, uh, uh, for all these things that happen. By the way, my dad worked for IBM, so I'm very familiar oh, with all these. Oh, so you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing you're you're the things you're recounting, you know, sort of this uh, people that went through the the depression and World War mm-hmm. II and all that. Uh, it's funny how people kind of split. At there, there's a cultural split there. Where you're talking about sort of the the the. Beatnik, the uh, uh-huh. uh, you know on the road people, and then there's my dad's side of that equation, which is to go uh, to sort of try to recapture the 40s. They seem to uh-huh. my dad seems to be perpetually trying to relive the 40s and the <laughs> 30s and all that. So yeah. it's funny to see how different people sort of. It really is a fork in the road in many well, ways I for think, a lot I of people. I think you know I think this is true of every generation. I yeah, mean, yeah. if you look at. I mean, look, not everybody voted for John Kennedy. It right. was a very close election. Right. Uh, not everybody voted for Barack Obama. It, it, it was less close, but, but still, you're, we're talking, you know, when, when you talk about generational changes, I mean, you know, not everybody in the generation goes that direction. But yeah. in, in this case, there was a convergence in lots of different realms of life that where the, the kind of the leaders, the, the spearheading figures all sort of converged in the same direction, and that's what made it a pivotal year. Well, having done this research, having uh, 
seen what made this convergence happen. Uh, does that give you any predictive powers? <laughs> can you, can you see something coming? But, but I, do, I do think that we may very well be going through a very similar time now. Oh. I mean, it's kind of convenient that this is the 50th anniversary, but I really do see uh, some parallels, uh, mm-hmm. not only between Kennedy and Obama, you know, both of them, you know, very young, and some many people thought too young, uh, outsiders, uh, people talking about change, embodying change, but also the kinds of changes that were going on. You know, kind of the shrinking world in the late 50s you had in a physical sense, you know, ICBMs and, and, and rockets and, and jet airplanes. Now you have, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the movement of capital in, in milliseconds, which has, you know, tremendous implications for the entire world, as we're seeing in, in the recent economic crunch, right? Mm-hmm. You also are having, uh, in the late 50s, this sort of breakdown of hierarchies in culture. Uh, well, you know, look what's going on now. You have things like YouTube and, and Twitter and, and, and all kinds of things which are really obliterating the, the division between spectacle and spectator, public and private. Uh, and, and at the same time, you have this, uh, this sense of, of technological change and international change that is both breathtaking and exciting and makes one hopeful for the future, but that also carries with it strands that, that are terrifying, that, that, you know, that, that make you wonder if, if the human species, as we know it, is even going to be functioning in, 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 in a few decades from now. So I think, I think the parallels, I think this book, and, and there are a lot of things out there in the culture of the late 50s, you know, Mad Men, uh, there are three beat movies that are in production. Uh, I, th- I think it's resonating because people do sense that the late 50s was a time when we were on the verge of something, when something was triggered, and there's a real sense that we're on the verge of something now as well. Yes. Well, it's a, it's a wonderful, eye-opening book, 1959, the year everything changed. Fred Kaplan, thanks for being on Weekly Signals. Oh, thank you. Pleasure. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.